0: probably for people is in addition to giving over a deep idea from the Torah portion, it's just give a quick overview of the Torah portion. So um, for those, I really recommend, and it's, it's really worthwhile if you buy an English um, homash, an English version of the Torah, the art scroll stone edition is great. And you could follow along the weekly Torah portion in English with some commentaries on the bottom, and it would really give you a big sense, like a really good sense of what's going on in the tour, and then you'll have lots of questions for your bar sessions with your uh, Rage Rabbi or Ravitson. Okay, so this week's tour portion, what we're going to do today is a little bit different. I want to share a deep insight, but I also want to discuss a little bit about the current events. We mentioned a a few weeks ago that we're going to try to share, you know, when we have insights into modern things that are going on, Especially right now, the conflict in Israel, we're going to share it. And it really comes straight out of last week's and this week's Torah portions, where we ha- are introduced to someone named Yishmael. So I'll just tell you the short story is Avraham. Our forefather, Abraham, married someone named Sarah. Their names at the time were Avram and Sarai. Just FYI, if you ever need to answer that for a trivia question, their names changed later to Avraham and Sarah. And they are childless for many, many years. And eventually, Sarah says, you know what, Avram, take my, take my maid servant. Uh, her name is Hagar. She was actually an Egyptian princess. And she, he said, she says, marry her. There's something like concubine type of thing, like a second wife type of thing. And um, that way, at least you can have a child. So he does. And they have a child. And he names him Yishmael. And Yishmael is the father of the Arab nations. Then, after many, many years, um, Sarah finally has a child. And miraculously, it's a whole story, and she names him Yitzchak. And eventually, she starts to get very uncomfortable that Yishmael is shooting arrows at Yitzchak and tormenting him. And she says, we have to get rid of Yeshmal. And she, Avram is very upset because he really loves both of his sons. But he capitulates and agrees to send away Yishmol and Hagar from the family. And they leave and go off into the desert and settle elsewhere. And um, then in this week's Torah portion, just we're not going to go into it, but um, at the end of last week's Torah portion, Avram receives the mitzvah of bris, circumcision which is the first mitzvah officially given to Avram and the Jewish people to a certain degree. And Avram circumcises his son Yishmael. Does anyone know what age Yishmael is when he gets circumcised? At the age of 13. And some Muslim communities still circumcise at the age of 13. Very painful. and Yitzchak is born, and Yitzchak gets his bris at what what age? No. At the normal time. At the normal time. Yes. At the baby. What? The, how old does a Jewish boy get a bris? Eight days. Excellent. And um, finally, in this week's Torah portion, after the bris. So, there's a story, and we're going to go into this story, and then we'll, we'll conclude with another part. Um, Avram is sitting outside his tent in this week's Torah portion. The Torah portion begins. Avram is sitting outside his tent just after getting his bris. He just got circumcised. Avram himself circumcises himself at the age of 99. And he's sitting outside his tent, and the Torah says God appears to him. He's having some sort of a revelation of God. And just then, he looks up and he sees three Arab. They weren't Arabs exactly descended from Yishmael. This is before Yishmael had children, but three desert nomads in the distance. And Avram says to God, peace, I'll be back. And he stops talking to God and runs to get these guests. And he he begs them to come to his tent so he could feed them and take care of them. That was Avram's Favorite, favorite thing to do. That was his number one mitzvah: was taking, was give, doing kindness for travelers. And from here, the Talmud says we learn from this that it's better to do kindness for guests than it is to talk to God. And that is a radical, very Jewish theological statement. Okay, and we're going to come back to that concept shortly. And then the, the, it turns out that these three guests are really angels, and they tell him you're gonna have a son, his name, is, and, and etc. cetera. Okay, Yitzhak is born. Um, continuing in the Torah portion, just, just, this is for just the, this is just the cliff notes, just so that you guys have a sense of what goes on in the Torah. There's this town called Sodom. They're very, uh, corrupt town. And Hashem tells Avram that, that the town is going to be destroyed, and Avram prays to try to spare the town. And listen to this. Because he doesn't want civilian casualties. He says, how can you kill innocent people with not righteous people? I'm just saying it is interesting. That is the conversation. Okay? How can you kill innocent people with people that are not innocent? And God says, you're right. If you can find ten – if we can find ten innocent people, righteous people in the town, then it won't be destroyed. And it doesn't happen. The town is destroyed. Um, And finally, at the end of the Torah portion – We have the story of the Akedah, which is the binding of Yitzchak. Hashem comes to Avram and says, take your son, your beloved son Yitzchak, and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. And this is considered the 10th and most intense test of Avram's life because Avram's whole life, he's going around teaching people that God is a compassionate God who does not want human sacrifice. Even though human sacrifice was the norm in most cultures at the time, Avram said, God does not want this. He wants us to live, and yet he's told to sacrifice his son. In the end, he does not actually go through with it. But that's uh, an intrinsic part of the Torah portion, a very, very important part of what we're going to discuss today. Okay? So any questions on the Torah portion in general before we go into the details? Okay. So some things that we need to know is... What is so important about circumcision? Why is that the first mitzvah given to the Jewish people? What's the significance of circumcision? It's kind of weird, if you think about it, right? To cut a piece of the body. And that why that piece of the body? Does anyone know what the word bris means? A treaty, excellent. It means like a pact, it means like a cov- like it's translated in English as a covenant. I don't know what a covenant is, but uh it it's a treaty it's like a deep connection somehow the deep connection between the Jewish people and God for all generations takes place in the flesh of the male part of the body. why what's the significance? Yes. No. The, who born of a, someone born of a Jewish mother is Jewish, but the bris is important for kind of like membership in certain – in like official mitzvahs, like the eating – the Passover offering, which is like the number one introduction to the Jewish nation, which we'll talk about another time. Actually, the first mitzvah given to the Jewish nation as a nation. Um, you have to have a circumcision in order to do that. So it is essential to a lot of Jewish things, but you're still Jewish even without it. So before we go into Bris, I want to talk a little bit more about Yishmal and what we're going through currently now. There are countless and countless sources that are essentially prophecies about the current events that we're going through. And I just want to share just a few of them. I am just beginning to study it myself. I haven't. You know, I just did a little bit of research, but there's, there's a number of books written on the topic, The Spiritual Roots of yishmal the Arab Nations. And um, so I'll just share with you a few sources. First of all, related to bris, and we have to understand the significance of bris, the Zohar, which is a primary Kabbalistic text, says that yishmal the Arab people, because yishmal received a bris, a circumcision, he and his descendants will merit the land of Israel. For a certain time of history. So. It's interesting to note. That the Arabs were in control. Of Jerusalem. for four, And Israel for 450 years. Right. Shortly after the time of Muhammad. Islam is about 1500 years old. Um, 450 uh, For 450 years. It was controlled by Arabs. Then the. The. Christians took over during the Crusades, and there was back and forth, back and forth, and finally it went back into Muslim hands, and then it was taken over by the Turks, and the Tur- Turks controlled Israel for about a thousand years until the British. Okay, Turks are not Arabs, but they are Muslim, and um, again, it's not clear, but it seems like many sources say that all Muslims are essentially. Con- connected to Yishmael. Yishmael is like the father of the Muslim nations, and Islam attributes themselves to Yishmael, that they are the spiritual legacy of Yishmael. Now, what's fascinating is that, so first of all, we have to understand the connection between Bris and the land of Israel, okay? And it says that in the Zohar, that the Arabs get Israel for a certain portion of history because of their circumcision. Another thing that's very interesting is many years ago, before I was observant, I was, um, I was exploring different religions. And I had a, neighbor, a doorman in my building in Manhattan who was Pakistani. And one day, and I had been exploring going to a mosque and synagogue and different places. And one day I came home and my doorman says to me, today is Ibrahim Day. I said, Ibrahim Day, what's that? Does anyone know who Ibrahim is? Abraham, right, Abraham. I was like, wow, what's Abraham Day? He said, today is the day that Abraham sacrificed his son, Yishmael, on the mountain. Does that ring a bell from any of the stuff I talked about from this week's Torah portion? Is it the same thing that it says in the Torah? So... In our Torah, it says, who did Abraham offer up on the mountain? Yitzchak. And this happens to be one of the number one debates between the, the Muslims and, and us. Is the Muslims claim, and I was talking to my, my doorman and I said, listen, I don't know so much about Judaism or Islam, but I'm pretty sure it was Isaac. And he said, no, Yishmal." And I said, I think it's Isaac. I have a Torah upstairs. I'm going to go check it out when I, when I go upstairs. But this is the number one place where the Arabs disagree and the Muslims with, with the Torah. They believe, the Muslims believe the Torah was written by God. Muslims believe in God. Which God? Our God. They believe in one God. Allah is Hashem. Now, they have different beliefs about what God wants from us. But they believe 100% that Torah was written by God, and they believe also that the Jewish prophets were real prophets—Musa, Inshallah, right? Moses, may peace be upon him. Huran, I think Huran, Aaron, right, and and uh, Dawid, David, King David, and so on and so forth. The debate and they also believe in Jesus also by the way was a prophet the one of the primary debates is they believe that God then gave a new law through Muhammad in the Quran does that sound familiar any other religions sound like that New Testament right so the Islam is essentially the third try God wrote one book gave it to Jewish people then he gave another one. Through J C, and finally the third and best is the Quran. Now the problem with this, and a major problem, first of all, obviously, if you believe that God wrote the Torah, then what do you do with the fact that God says in the Torah, "I will never replace you, you're my chosen nation. This law is eternal." Okay, that's a, that's a problem Christians and Muslims both have to deal with. But another issue is they believe that the chosen son of Abraham was not Yitzchak but Yeshma, and What's the obvious question that we could ask? How old is Islam? How old is the Torah? 3,300 3, and change. So, what's the obvious question to ask? On the Muslim account of that story. And why does our book say something different? And our book said something different 2,000 years before Islam. So they say, oh, you guys are liars. You made it up. The Jews made it up. But if that's the case, and they believe that our book was written by God, there should be some version of the Torah floating around somewhere in in archaeological sites that show that it really was Yeshmal and not Yitzchak. So that's a major, major problem uh, that, with with the with the Muslim claim. But say it again. The Jews, the Jews made it up The Jews corrupted the text of God's law That God wrote the Torah But the Jews changed it The word of Muhammad Oral tradition Whatever you want to say Or, or what they claim is the word of God Right So So um, This becomes a major point of contention Who was the spiritual inheritor Of Abraham's legacy, was it the Jews or was it the Arabs? Okay, so this is a fascinating topic, and um, let's let's explore a little bit. What's so significant about Abraham's mission? What was Abraham's mission that we believe we are the inheritors are, and obviously the Torah has claimed that we are the inheritors are of for the past three thousand three hundred years, long long before the the. Quran changed the narrative so just, just a couple of more points before we get into Abraham and just, just interesting to note is that the according to Kabbalah according to the Talmud there are so Yishmael the Torah says is a wild man he lives in the desert he's an archer and the Talmudic sources explain that because Sarah kicked Yishmael out we will suffer because of that for all of time that really although Sarah felt that she was doing the right thing in many ways the Torah says that her prophecy was greater than Avraham's she realized that it had to happen nonetheless because she was she hurt maybe she was too too cruel in the way she did it that because of that we will suffer the Talmud says additionally Abraham prayed that Yishmael would be healthy and succeed. When when Abraham received the news from the angel that he's about to have a son, after not having children with his wife, Sarah, for so many years, you would think he'd be ecstatic, right? You would think he would say, oh my gosh, I'm having a son. Thank you, God. I'm so excited. You know what his first words were? What about Yishmael? And the Talmud explains that Abraham really loved Yishmael. And even after he was kicked out, by Sarah, He went to visit him every few years and give him advice. And as soon as Sarah passed away, do you know what he did? He remarried Hagar and brought Yishmael back to live with him. It's, it's a beautiful story and it's very – I cried when I was reading this the other day. I was like, wow, like there's a beautiful connection. And the Torah says that Yishmael does tshuva. He comes back to God at the end and, and he buries – Abraham with Yitzchak together as brothers. Is that fascinating? Like, I just find this stuff so unbelievable. Additionally, the the Talmudic sources say that Yeshmal is called Yishmael. Do you know what Yeshmal means? Anyone hear a Hebrew word in there that you probably know? Shema. What does Shema mean? Means to hear or to listen. Yishmal is the future tense. It means that God will hear. And the Talmud says that God will hear the prayers of the Jewish people because of the suffering that Yishmal will cause the Jewish people at the end of time. Prophetic words. Is this crazy? Do you think this is like insane? Amazing? Um, other sources say that the, the Talmud says there will be four exiles of the Jewish people Babel, Babylon, Mada and Paras, Persia, um, Yavan, the Greeks, and Rome. The Babylons destroyed the temple the first time. Then we were exiled into Babylon. Then the, the Persians took over that. We were exiled by Persians. That's the, that's the story of, uh, of, of Queen Esther, the Purim story. Then we go back to Israel. The Persians help us and enable us to build the temple. We go back to Israel, and then the Greeks take over the Persian Empire, right? The Trojan horse. You guys remember a little bit about the history. And then then, then we have the Hanukkah story, which takes place under the Greek rule. Then the Romans take over the Greeks. And the Romans destroy the temple and exile the Jewish people to the four corners of the earth. And we believe that we are still under the ru- rule of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is the Christian world. Rome becomes the first Christian empire and they take on the mission. Uh, the entire Roman mission becomes Christian. Now that's the Western world. We believe we're still under the exile of the Western world. And yet, according to Kabbalah, there's a fifth exile of the Jewish people and that's called Gullus Yishmael, the exile of the Arabs and the Kabbalists explained that at the end of time when the Rome Rome still rules the world the Western world is still control. the world is the world still controlled by the West there's a new exile that faces the Jewish people and that is the Arabs and it happens within the the rule of the Western world so what fascinating thing happens in our literally in, in modern history, is the Jews suffer immensely under where? There are Jews living, Sephardim living in the Arab world, Muslim, under Muslim rule, and Ashkenazim are controlled by Christian rule in Europe. Who suffers more the past 2,000 years? Ashkenazim or Sephardim? Not that it's a contest. It's just Interesting. Who suffers more? Do we suffer more by the Christians or by the Muslims for the past 2,000 years? Christians, no doubt. There's no, no debate. The Muslims tax us. Every once in a while they kill us. But mostly Jews live very well in Arab lands. Second class citizens persecuted but not murdered in the same way. But Jews in Europe face terrible, terrible, terrible suffering. Uh, average of every 20 years, Jewish communities are kicked out of European countries. Every 20 years. And of course, it happens in the Muslim world as well, but not as, not as extreme. Suddenly comes the Holocaust. The Holocaust is the crescendo, the crescendo of, of Christian hate, of European hate against the Jews. And suddenly, right after the Holocaust, the world changes. Suddenly, the Western world becomes our friend. Jews are welcome, of course there were quotas, America could have done much more to save Jews, but suddenly Jews become free in in the Western world. And just then the state of Israel is formed, which is deeply connected to the Holocaust, spiritually. And suddenly 900,000 Jews are exiled from Arab countries, 900,000 Sephardi Jews are kicked out of Arab countries. And the Arabs, our cousins, who we used to get along with fairly well, become our greatest enemy. Exactly what it says in Kabbalah. The ancient sources say that the final war, the final war before the Messianic era, before Mashiach comes, it says, many sources say, is a war between Persia. Who's Persia? Iran and the West. Persia and the West. Some sources say that it's actually Yishmal will team up with Persia in this war. Arabs and the Iranians. Iranians are not Arab, they're Muslims. Scary, right? Listen to this source. Rabbi Yitzchak said, this is a Talmudic source written before Islam was a religion. Do you understand this? By the way, all these sources that I'm quoting you are were written primarily when Yishmael was just a bunch of nomadic Arabs living in the desert. There was no nation. There was no powerful army yet. It says, Rabbi Yitzchak says, the year in which the Melech HaMashiach, the Messiah, will be revealed, all the nations of the world will be provoking each other. The king of Persia will provoke the king of Arabia. Arabia is Saudi Arabia, right? The two two superpowers in the Muslim world. They're Sunnis versus Shiites. They hate each other more than they hate Jews, by the way. The king of Arabia will go to Rome, the Western world, to take counsel. Abraham Accords. And the king of Persia will threaten to destroy the entire world. Nuclear Iran. The nations of the world will be outraged and panic. They will fall on their faces and experience pains like birth pangs. Israel too will be outraged in a state of panic and will ask, where can we go? Scary. Says the Vilna the final war, the Talmud says the final war will be between, between Persia and, and, and the West, Persia and Rome. And it's a debate in the Talmud who wins that war. The Vilna Gon, great Kabbalist and Talmudist, the greatest rabbi in Lithuania 200 years ago, said that the final war will last for nine minutes. Now, back then, you must have thought he was crazy. A war can't take nine minutes. It takes that long just to load your gun. How can a war take nine minutes? Now we, now we know the answer. Two hundred years later, scary, crazy, crazy. So now, okay. So anyone have any questions on some of those prophecies? Is that crazy? Is that like, is that insane? Does that make you like a believer? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. so something that we have to know about prophecies, and then we're going to move on to just discussing the idea of circumcision and Abraham and we'll do that briefly is that bad prophecies do not have to come true. We do not believe that any of these wars that are that are prophesized have to happen. it's completely one hundred percent up to us if we do what we have to do to perfect ourselves, to repent, to to come back to God, none of it has to happen. So it's totally in our hands. So it sounds scary and it is scary. The prophecies are I mean, they're almost as scary as what's happening in real life. The what's happening in the world is scary. We have to know that everything that happens is for our ultimate benefit, but we can we can get there without having to go through hardship. And it's totally up to how we respond to the suffering that's, you know, if we take the messages that Hashem is telling us. So, um, okay. So I want to say a quick idea about what is that mission of Abraham, that, that mission that was passed on to Yitzchak, which it says clearly in the Torah, that Yitzchak's children and all descendants forever are connected to the mission of Avraham. So, What was so unique about Avram? What did Avram bring to the world? Anyone? Belief in one God. And that is definitely what it says in the textbooks. But it's not exactly true. Now, if you've hung out with me long enough, then you realize that What Avram taught the world was not just one God like a man in the sky. Avram brought to the world the idea of complete hardcore monotheism, that all there is is God. But he was not the first monotheist. You know that? Adam, Noah, Noah's descendants. There were many people in the Torah that were prophets before Avram, and they believed in one God. They had direct revelation of one God. So what's so unique about Avraham? So there are a few different explanations. One is that he was the first to come to belief in one God through philosophy, through his own logical conclusion. He didn't, he didn't receive that tradition from anyone. He was raised as an idolater. He came to it on his own. That's answer number one. We talked about that last week. Answer number two is that although there were many monotheists, Avraham was the first to teach monotheism. He was the first to go out into the streets and share that wisdom with others. The the other monotheists, even who lived in the time of Avraham, essentially had monasteries where they meditated and they they studied, but they didn't go out into the streets. Avraham opened up a soup kitchen. He was out there sharing lessons and teachings with regular people. It says that Avraham and Sarah converted thousands of people to be followers of Hashem. So that they were essentially the first Chabad house in the middle of the desert. For those of you who know what a Chabad house is, if not, you should check it out. A good good place to end up if you're in uh, Timbuktu or somewhere where there aren't a lot of Jews, there is probably a Chabad nearby. So, but there's more to it. What, what is, what is the, what does it mean to be spiritual? What's the definition of spirituality, definition of holiness? What? Do, what, what? Before the time of Avraham, to be spiritual, do you know what it meant? Think about most religions in the world. What does it mean to be spiritual? Anyone have a definition of spirituality? Someone take a stab at it. What does spirituality mean? Okay, that that would maybe be a, a term of re, of like religion or re, be, belief in God, faith. But what is spirituality? Just break down the words. Separate from what? Oh, spirituality is connection to the soul, to the spirit, right? Spirituality is called spirituality. It refers to the soul, something that's that you don't see, like the air around us. It's a spirituality that is separate from your – and in contrast to physicality. You have a body and you have a soul, and they want completely different things. Spirituality is learning to connect to the soul, and by that token – What does spirituality think about physicality? It's it's actually, it, it takes you away from spirituality, right? If you want to be spiritual, should you eat a lot? Let's think about it. Think about a holy person. What does a holy person eat? Pure foods, right? Like wheatgrass or uh, tofu, right? Rice and bread and water, right? What does a sinner eat? (laughs) Fat, (laughs) meat, right? Steak, red, bloody steak, right? What, what does a, what does a holy person do all day? What are they busy with? Prayer, meditation, right? What about a sinner? Arte, right? On that note, you know, what does a saint sleep on? board. Simple cot, right? What about a sinner? Queen, king size bed, water bed, mirrors on the ceiling, right? What about a, uh, who does a saint sleep with? Nobody? God? Who does a sinner sleep with? Oh, wrong question. Who doesn't a sinner sleep with? All right, you get the idea? In our mind, we believe that spirituality is disconnection from the body and, and, and physicality is indulgence in the body. And that essentially is the religion that existed before Abraham. There were monotheists, but they believed God was in heaven. If we want to get close to God, we have to separate from this world comes Avraham and he teaches God is in this world. God is in the physical world. He's infinite. That means he's everywhere. He's in everything. To disconnect from the physical means we're limiting God. We're saying God is only in spirituality. But God is not spiritual or physical. God is the source of everything. So the message of the bris is that Hashem says to Avram, I want to have a relationship with you. And do you know where I want my relationship to be with you? In the most physical part of the most physical gender. That's where I want to live. I want to be involved in your life. Because if you think about it, what's the most godlike thing a human being can do? Creating a life. So in that part of the body, which has the potential to be the most physical, also has the potential to be the most spiritual. But the the point is neither physicality or spirituality. The point is bringing God in to the physical world. And that's exactly what happens through the sexual act, is you bring a soul into the world. You literally create life. You become godlike. So the idea of bris bris means Kabbalistically connection. It's a pact, but it means connection. We're going to connect to God. And Avram made a pact that all of his ancestors would connect to God through the physical world. And the message of Judaism is, and we learned it in this week's Torah portion, Avram's sitting there meditating on God. He just got his bris. He's having a spiritual revelation of God. And then he sees in the distance three Arabs, travelers. You know what he says to God? Peace. I'm going to go welcome guests. The very message of Judaism is to take your revelation of God and bring it into the way you live your life, into acts of kindness, feeding people, giving, living the way you conduct business, the way you get married, the way you raise your children. Judaism is is a holistic vision of bringing God in, To the physical world. Connecting spirituality and physicality. Showing that there is no disconnection. The two worlds are really one. So there's no mitzvah to be celibate in Judaism. In fact the greatest mitzvah you can do. Is intimacy with your spouse. Because that's the ultimate act of oneness. That can exist in the physical world. Between two people. So. The Talmud asks a question. A Roman came to Rabbi Akiva, one of the great Talmudic sages, and said, "Who's greater, God or man?" What do you think they expected Rabbi Akiva to say? God. And the response they were going to say, the Talmud tells us, was, "Oh yeah, well, what about bris? You're tampering with God's creation, right? You know that the Greeks and Romans were against circumcision." The Hanukkah story, one of the things they outlawed was circumcision because they said, how can you corrupt the perfect human body? The Greeks believed that the human body was perfect, perfect specimen of of beauty. And they said, you're you're deforming the human body. You're deforming perfection. So you know what Rabbi Akiva said back? He said, man makes better things than God. He said, what do you mean? How can you say that? Says Rabbi Kiva, God creates wheat, and man turns that wheat into bread. God gave us an unfinished world. He gave us unfinished bodies. He created us with all sorts of imperfections and defaults. Our job is to perfect ourselves and perfect the world. Briss is the message that we have to become partners with Hashem in cutting away the parts of us that hide who we really are. You know, like, I think Michelangelo one time, I think it was Michelangelo, he created that incredible David statue, right? We're talking about Briss. It's not so flattering, but uh, um, anyway, he created that amazing David statue. By the way, King David did wear clothes. It's a mitzvah to wear clothes. So uh, I don't think he walked around naked like that. But they asked Michelangelo, I believe, how did you do that? How did you... How did you see King David? Like I think there was this beautiful marble that had been sitting around for for decades, and they were just waiting for someone to use it. And he said, "I saw King David in that." So they said, "How did you do it?" He said, "He said I just had to remove the parts of stone that weren't David." And that's our mission in life is we have to remove the parts of us that hide the real us. But the message of Briss is to bring spirituality and divinity into the physical world, into every aspect of our life. The Talmud, I'll conclude this idea. The Talmud says, that you know, same story. Someone asked Rabbi Akiva, why is there poverty? If your God is so great, why is there poverty? How can he allow there to be poverty in the world? So says Rabbi Akiva, does anyone want to take a guess what the Jewish answer is to that question? Why does God allow there to be poverty? So that we can do something about it. Our job is to change the world and perfect the world. And we do that through every aspect of our life. So that's the message of Abraham. And by the way, now we can understand why the Zohar says that the Arabs get a portion of the land of Israel because of their bris. Because the idea of circumcision is intimately connected to the land of Israel. Because it brings us down into the ground. We have a bond with the physical land. And the idea of Israel is it's a base, a home base, where the Jewish people can literally shine their message to the entire world through having a, a state, having a country, where we can live according to Hashem's mission, message and literally share that with the whole world. So... The Talmud that the 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 prophets call the temple in Jerusalem a house of prayer for all people. And when the temple stood, people would come from all over the world to pray. It wasn't just a Jewish temple, it was a temple for the entire world. And the Talmud says if the non-Jews knew how much the temple did for them, they never would have destroyed it. So we should be blessed to see speedily in our days these prophecies come true, not the bad ones, just the good ones. And uh, to see the ultimate return of the Jewish people to our homeland and the revelation of God for the entire world, thank you guys so much. Just to reiterate, we have a a clear tradition that whenever there's a negative prophecy written in the Torah, it does not have to happen that way we a hundred percent. It is in our hands. The, mes- the Messiah has to come eventually in history, but it can come through apocalyptic nuclear destruction or he can come through us uniting and connecting to him. So we hope and pray that he comes about the right way and not through any more suffering. The suffering ends right now. There's a, t- a Talmudic story that one of the rabbis met the messiah he met the mashiach he was sitting at the gates of rome and he said to him what when will the master reveal himself and the mashiach the messiah said today and he got so excited he ran home messiah is coming and nothing happened so a few weeks later he went back to rome and he went to the he found the messiah again he said to him i thought you said you were coming today he said i did today if you listen to god's voice meaning it's completely in our hands it could happen at this very moment and none of the negative prophecies about global nuclear destruction have to happen but it's 100% in our hands so we pray that he will come speedily and in our time in without any more suffering